1: Just in time for the holidays, fill your home and your season for less at HomeDepot.com with up to 40% off a wide assortment of select bedding and bath linens. Update your bed or bath online right from the comfort of your own cozy couch. Even get free delivery and flexible returns. How's that for holiday cheer? Up to 40% off. Holiday home decor improved from HomeDepot.com. How doers get more done. Online only. Free delivery on select items $45 or more. Visit HomeDepot.com for more information.
2: Welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. Uh, joining me today is an old friend, Tim Chisholm. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you feeling this morning? Now that we have a uh, a transitional government in place uh, in the U.S., how's your general, uh, you know, your, your your view of the world this morning?
1: Man, it's just a little bit brighter. I, I know it doesn't actually solve anything necessarily, but just feeling like you're not waking up to a dumpster fire every day, just Puts a little bit of a smile on my face, so I'm excited. I can say that much for sure.
2: Yeah, I I can't wait for politics to be boring again, because I liked it that way. I really did. Yeah. So let's let's go into uh, some Raptors talk, man. It's been a while since I uh, talked to you, and we got a draft coming up in a couple of weeks. And I know most people aren't really following the draft too closely. After following it very closely for years when the Raptors were crap, because that was the only thing you would kind of look forward to, and this year, because we're good, it's it's less, uh, less on the radar. When you look at the Raptors roster, are there any particular needs or positions that you would feel comfortable filling through the draft?
1: I think that there's an opportunity for some front court depth. Uh, I, I think that there's the um, unpredictability of what's going to happen with the center position. I don't know how strongly the Raptors believe that Chris Boucher is ready to go Full time, uh, big minutes role, and neither would a rookie necessarily. But there is an opportunity to sort of build up your pipeline. I mean, Boucher is is, is deceptively old; like we're not talking about a twenty two year old. And so, the opportunity to have someone in that front court uh, pipeline that maybe has a bit of a um, of a roadmap ahead of him that's one role. I mean, the funny thing with the Raptors with with that kind of thing is they tend to be fairly active with the players that they bring into the organization. I mean, back in the day, there used to be a bit of a sense that. The Raptors would sort of bring in guys and not necessarily have a, a terrific battle plan for how they're going to develop him. And now they're so, so proactive about how they bring guys in. Um, they really do project out three, four years in terms of how this person is going to develop. And so I think that even when you think about how this year's draft is playing out, it's almost a bit of a um, of an incorrect uh, perspective to look at it from in terms of what they're going to need going into next season. Because I think they're really trying to look at, what are they going to need in two years, three years, and how are they going to turn a player into that? So that's what gets kind of exciting about uh, uh, the draft for me with the Raptors. It's actually a bit of a window into what they're thinking about for two or three years from now.
2: Yeah, And also with young guys coming into the uh, league, I've also noted, and I, don't, I don't have any, you know, I haven't done any analysis on this, but it kind of feels like that there's a shorter runway between getting drafted and being really productive In an NBA context, like in in, in a rotation, as a rotation player, you look at guys like, you know, like Jamal Murray and uh, a couple of point guards like that who have gone from being drafted and within a couple of years have become like stars in the NBA. So it's even if you get a a later draft pick, it's pretty conceivable or it's not inconceivable that those guys will become very productive in the short run rather than what we were kind of used to that. Oh, you got to wait like four or five years before these guys kind of hook in.
1: I mean, we talk about it in Toronto because the team has used their G League team really, really well. But in general, in the NBA, I mean, there was a a mandate put in place about a decade ago to try to improve the pipeline of talent and try to improve how guys um, transition from either uh, high school or international play into the NBA. And the process was so gradual in a league where we're used to things happening a lot faster that it's really easy to overlook how transformational the G League wound up being. And I think it, it underlines the point that you're making exactly. It's this place where all of a sudden teams had the ability to not look at this very binary idea of either guys are getting minutes in the NBA or they're not. There's this whole other place now where you can use as a tool to try to get guys minutes, um, get guys an opportunity to work out not just their on-court play, but their on-court chemistry, understand the system, understand their basketball IQ, and it's had a, a really profound effect on, I mean, obviously on the careers of, of several people on the Raptors and, and other teams who've used the uh, G League really well, like Miami. And I think that's one of the things that uh, that's really helped buoy that ability for guys to make these quicker impacts, because I think it's created a mindset shift in a lot of organizations. So even if you're talking about guys like Jamal Murray, who weren't necessarily brought through the G League, there is such a more developmental mindset in place with so many teams that you're seeing the ramifications up and down the roster and and i think that the uh the, the the kudos really go to to the parts of the league that identified that as being an opportunity to improve the league and to the teams that were really at the forefront of making that more of a uh of a tool in their arsenal and maximizing it and so it's really cool to be able to see that because i think it it lets teams who maybe aren't as good at least feel like um their path to uh improvement doesn't necessarily have to exist only at the top of the draft as there are other ways to cultivate star
2: level players and it's also like the distance between uh, you as a fan and your draft and stash guys has has reduced and you're able to keep track of them like if you look at you know like uh, Matt Thomas for example i mean we were able to watch him before he came to the big club O'Shea Brissett's another guy Paul Watson's another guy that that we've been kind of looking at so the old idea of draft somebody and stash them in Europe for a few few years and like not look at them again for a while has gone away. And instead, when you when you draft somebody, you know, you can keep a close eye on them and the games will be on YouTube and so on. So people, even though the, the draft pick is, I guess, later in the draft and not as um, attractive as, as previous draft picks, the interest is higher. Absolutely.
1: Oh, because it's access, right? And it's it's always been the thing that's really driven a certain kind of fandom in sports is is access. And I think you and I have both been around long enough doing this sort of thing where there was a time when a lot of these players and a lot of these names were, were theoretical entirely. And the idea that every once in a while you could stream an international tournament to see some of these guys play or maybe find some archival footage of, of them playing in college. And I'm not even talking about like the deep, deep guys. I'm talking guys who are picked maybe in the back half of the lottery. I'm uh, oh, sorry, back half of the of the first round. And it's been such an interesting transition to watch all of a sudden the levers of access adapt to fan interest, because I also don't think back I mean, I was working at TSN back in the mid nineties and I, there was definitely no expectation that people would have any interest in that level of minutiae in any sport, especially basketball, uh, but any sport really. And I think what you sort of to see is uh, more and more avenues opened up by the internet that needed content would find ways to use this sort of cheap content to, Fill their programming schedules or fill their programming budgets. And you found there was an audience for it. And is it everybody that would watch an NBA game? No, but there's a large enough subset of people whose appetite is so ravenous that it does create this entire ecosystem around these players who really nobody should know who they are. There was no reason for anybody to know who Matt Thomas was before playing for the Raptors, not even just getting signed, but playing for the Raptors. And yet by the time he's hitting the court, Pretty hardcore fans have a really good sense of the strengths and weaknesses of his game, and not just because they read about it on the web, it's because they've actually watched the footage. It's a phenomenal change in uh, the last sort of 20 years of how sports is consumed. I find it super cool as being somebody who, when I was younger, would have salivated at the opportunity for this kind of stuff, and now it's just taken for granted.
2: Yeah, who knew uh how Ramon Vandehar, the Raptors second round pick in the 2003 draft, uh, a 7-3 Dutchman, would have turned out if he just had the G League at the time. We ne- we, will, we will never know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, the playoffs have been, you know, over for a while, yeah, but we we have to cover it a little bit. But let me start with with Siakam because he obviously struggled during the during the postseason, especially against the Celtics. And, uh, you know, we've seen this story before, uh, like we, we have seen it with a bunch of players who went once they hit their uh, their postseason crunch time uh, platform, they kind of fizzle out. Do you see anything different about Siakam as a player which makes you go, you know what, this guy, he actually will become a quote unquote number one option on this team like he 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 is he has something that maybe DeRozan or Bosch and certainly Berniani didn't have that, that that makes him special and he's someone you could uh, hang your hat on
1: I wouldn't say that I would feel comfortable saying that he will inevitably become a star but I say that of almost any player in the NBA I, I have a kind of sickness towards this idea that, that uh, a player's development is always this steady upward climb and a kind of uh, I'm revolted by the idea that the pressure that puts on players. But what I will say, the thing that I think is different than those guys, and it's a it's a, a funny way to look at it, but it's something that really struck me during the playoffs, is we often um, elevate Siakam because he's been able to develop so quickly after picking up basketball so late. And that is absolutely worth praising. But the flip side of that is that he's just experienced less stuff. And the game of basketball really breaks down into two very, very different types of development. There's the kind of development that is skill development. That is, if you put in the hours working on any particular skill, eventually you should see the payoffs on the court. And the only thing you're really limited uh, to that is the amount of time you want to put in the gym. And you can do a lot of catching up really quickly when you want to invest that time. And by all accounts, Siakam's done that. Now, the other side of it is what you get by just having the reps throughout your life on the court and being put in a lot of different situations. So by that, I mean guys who started playing basketball when they were nine, 10, 11, and went through that whole circuit of playing in big tournaments or international guys playing in international tournaments or, or, or world championships. And the kind of um, highs and lows of the different level of intensity that you see being the number one guy in all of these different kinds of systems. It's not necessarily that that kind of thing always makes a player better, but they count as an experience that a player has to reckon with. And I just think that's one area where Siakam, by virtue of picking up basketball so late, is behind. And so I think the reason why I look at his experience in this playoffs is slightly different than guys like DeRozan and Bosch especially, is that he's a guy that just didn't ever have the level of experience that they had being a number one guy in a fairly prominent program. Um, And... That's going to have an impact when all of a sudden you were now the number one guy on a team with actual championship aspirations. And you saw it. I th- I think I think you saw the fact that whatever else um, that pandemic bubble situation does to a person, I think you really saw the opportunity uh that Siakam had to witness what it means to be game plan for every night, what it means to have the expectations on your team of your team on you every night to pull you out of these situations. And I'm less expecting him to bounce back. I'm just more curious to see what it does to him and what it does to his mental approach and to his game because you kind of can't predict how he's going to take it. I'm optimistic, but I'm, I'm, I'm really more curious to see uh, what that does because I think it was the first time we've really gotten to see him uh, put on that pedestal and knocked off a bit. And how players respond to that
2: is always a fascinating thing on their kind of uh, uh, quarreling with stardom. You won't really know how what progress he's made until the next postseason, and I've always found it extremely difficult. And often misleading to judge players in the regular season. And and I've always been an advocate of shortening the regular season. Maybe we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, It's just more the impatience in me is like, oh, man, we got to wait till the next postseason before he goes up against the Celtics again before we can see if he can handle, uh, you know, Marcus Smart or Jason Tatum or these guys that gave him a lot of trouble. Uh, His trajectory has been probably not repeatable like he has he has had exponential growth in his career so far and somewhat unrealistic to think that he'll increase at that rate Uh, he's definitely hit a bump where i think even if he adopts linear growth at this point over the next two to three years he'll find himself in the perennial all-star category and i think that's not an unreasonable expectation of him again as long as he's as he's showing linear improvement instead of exponential which i think is uh even that might be too much to ask but that's certainly my expectation
1: no i actually think that's it's particularly astute and and i think the interesting thing about the idea of something that's more closely used to linear growth is that it also doesn't have a um it doesn't have as a broad an implication of what that means i think part of the exponential growth meant that he was also growing in several different areas at once because there was so much for him to grow in and learn. Whereas now there's that kind of opportunity where because the things that he has to grow on are less just raw skills, there's still some of that for sure, but there is a kind of basketball maturity that has to happen now. It's, it's going to be very interesting to see where one puts their focus on that kind of linear growth. And you think back to someone like DeRozan, the place that he wanted to put it was on specific skill development. You know, he really went in on trying to improve his post game, trying to improve his passing and there is a benefit to that. Uh, I mean, he's he's a better player today than he was five years ago. But I think that what you kind of lost is that growth as a uh, as a as a player that can handle the kind of rigors of the postseason. Is year after year he was someone you could frustrate in the postseason. He was someone that you could take out of his game by being physical. The officials took him out of his game. And those were things that he never really seemed to be able to improve upon. And I think it speaks exactly to your point about how different the regular season and the playoffs are and that he continually made himself a better regular season player and it almost never mattered in the playoffs. And so when it comes to looking at Siakam's growth in that way, I get especially curious about what did he take away from this experience that wasn't just skill development? What did he take away from it that he wants to apply next? Next spring that that goes beyond just whether or not he can uh, finish a bit better through contact or whether or not he can uh, uh, perform better sort of in straight line drives to the basket. I want to know what does he do when he's in a situation where he hasn't hit a few shots or he's thrown a couple of turnovers like these are the kinds of things that I think actually will have a bigger Uh, impact on his ability to help winning than necessarily these specific skill developments but it's also a much less clear path how you improve in those areas and so that's something that I get especially curious about and I agree with you I don't think we're going to see it in the regular season we're not going to start seeing it again till uh till the next run through the playoffs and uh, by then you know I mean we have so much more to go through in terms of team construction and all that but that's that's the thing that I get curious about with Siakam's development this year
2: he's also uh, not necessarily taking bad shots I felt throughout the postseason like I I thought he's he definitely bailed people out by taking some questionable shots sometimes but overall if you had to assess his game I I thought he got the shots that you would expect him to make which is in sharp contrast to DeRozan who took shots the other team kind of wanted you to take every single time in the postseason Siaka missed a lot of a lot of gimmies, a, a lot of post-up moves, which he's able to finish over Kemba Walker, but just wouldn't or, or didn't. And so I think there's, there's a bit of bit difference there because it was almost surprising when he missed those shots because they were half-decent looks, which is different than previous incarnations of uh, players in his position.
1: No, it's really true. It's really true. Uh, but it, it, it also speaks to that idea of those aren't the same shots in the playoffs than they are in the regular season for all of the reasons we've talked about. I mean, I and it's... Something that I think is particularly frustrating for me when you sort of watch the broadcast and 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 you have people talk about like those are shots he normally makes. It's true they are shots he normally makes, and there are shots that I believe going forward he'll probably have a better chance at making because of having gone through this experience. But there's also that side of it where the shots aren't exactly the same because the game is a bit more physical in the playoffs. And so he's getting bumped a little bit more going to the basket or he is getting the pass in a slightly worse position, especially against a team like Boston, whose hellacious defense really, really wreaked havoc on the Raptors passing game. And all of that sort of stuff just makes it slightly different. And I think when you get a lot of people who maybe watch basketball a bit more casually, they'll look at that sort of stuff and be really frustrated that he was making those shots in the regular season and not in the playoffs. And what you're not necessarily seeing is all of the things that led up to the moment when he was shooting the ball were different. He didn't catch it exactly where he wanted to. He didn't get uh, as unmolested a path to the basket as he may have. Or the three pointer was kind of or the pass for the three pointer was thrown a little bit more at his knees because the passer was under more pressure. Or the passer had to move off his spot to make the pass. And these are all things that have an impact on on a player's game. And it's again, it sort of wraps. You know, it's it's the kind of thing where you have to understand that. Things are not going to be as ideal against Boston in game five, game six, game seven of the playoffs as they were against a run where you're playing Charlotte, then San Antonio, then the Lakers, where you maybe had a bit more of of a variance in terms of the kinds of defense you're going against and you feel like you can normalize yourself out. Like it just doesn't happen like that in the playoffs. And so that's something that it's true. There were shots that I think he will make going forward, but I, I also think that it won't just be because... Next time it'll be better. Like it will take a certain kind of readjustment to the way that he plays his game to make that happen.
2: As you look at the East right now, I mean, there's a couple of situations developing. The Celtics are certainly a a team that is going to be there to stay for the next two to three years at least, and uh, probably longer. Philly's undergoing through some, you know, reconstruction of their own, and who knows how that will pan out. Uh, To me, they were never really that you know contenders and Milwaukee obviously depends on what uh, what Giannis does. But as as you look to build your roster, uh, and especially concerning Fred Van Vliet, and you look at how his play was pretty easily, I'd say, neutralized by the Celtics length. Does that thought enter your mind as you're construction uh, as you're constructing this team or or offering Fred Van Vliet a long-term contract, knowing that one of your lead guards, one of, one of the guys who's going to play 38, 40 minutes a game, will likely struggle against the length that they will see in the postseason. Does that even enter your mind, or you're like, I'm so, I so believe in Fred that this is a no brainer for me?
1: No, I think it has to enter your mind. I, I, I think it's a it's a fairly astute observation that it's something that you can't write off completely. But I will say that. While all of those things are true, and it might be something that the Raptors have to sort of swallow uh, in making their attempt to re sign him, I also think that it isn't necessarily like you're comparing Fred Van Vliet to a specific other player. At this point, you're kind of comparing him to the theoretical struggles that he's going to have. And by that, I would mostly just mean that let's say that the Raptors at that point were to decide, you know what, these specific struggles make it hard for us to go above, let's say, 18 million a year. If he gets an offer like that somewhere else, we're going to have to let him walk. It's not that simple because then what do you do? It's not like you now have the next best player who has all of Fred Van Vliet's pluses and can challenge the length that you're going to get thrown at by a lot of these longer defensive teams like Boston and Miami. So it factors in because I think you have to be aware of the things and the deficiencies that some of your star players have. But I don't think it impacts your decision whether or not to resign him. I actually think it's just more of the domino effect. It's like, okay, if this is true of Fred Van Vliet, then we have to be able to understand how we're going to compensate for it somewhere else. I mean, I think the less uh, the, the lesser kind of explored part of that isn't so much necessarily Van Vliet on its own, but you have someone like him could be a bit disrupted by length, but also Kyle Lowry. You know, you have two smaller guards and... I think that most teams in the NBA would gladly take that as their starting backcourt, but it is a problem that sort of exists as a result of the fact that those are two of your best players and that's the situation. But if you're the Raptors and you're trying to think a little bit long-term, you know how much longer is Kyle Lowry your starting point guard? Is there a point when maybe you look to sort of either move him on or see if he'll accept a role on the bench. And I'm not thinking next year, but I'm thinking potentially deeper uh, if they keep him around and uh, Van Vliet's contract is, is longer than like a two plus one. But it's those kinds of things. It's, it's, it's again, like I'm really trying to be better about thinking about how these teams are are evaluating talent less in sort of year to year cycles. I'm really trying to think about decisions now having an impact three years from now. And I think in that case, you look at someone Van Vliet, and I think it's easy for me to make the call that you would very few exceptions, you make the money work to bring him back. And you figure out some of these flaws over the course of the next uh, 36 months. And that's the sort of time horizon that I think the Raptors are probably going to operate on when you're looking at someone like Van Vliet.
2: And, and one criticism of Van Vliet, or more, it's like praise for Lowry, to be honest, is that whenever the Raptors sort of struggled, they they went to Lowry not as a scorer, but as a creator. Lowry still, at his ripe old age, still has the ability to drive, break down a defense, kick out, and make something happen. You saw it with the, some of the two-man stuff he ran with Gasol and Ibaka, uh, his drive kicks, the way he gets fouled at the rim. And he, he really spurs the offense when they're sort of in doldrums. If if he's gone, how comfortable are you with Van Vliet taking on the role of playmaker? And, and and I say playmaker because as we as we go towards positionless basketball, more and more, you know, it's it's not so much about you know point guard, shooting guard. Maybe it's more about how much playmaking you have on the team as a whole. If Lowry isn't there, I sort of felt that the Raptors were really one dimensional, or the the amount of options they generated on the floor without Lowry were fairly limited. In contrast, when Lowry was on the floor, so if Lowry leaves the year after next, how comfortable are you with Fred kind of taking on that lead guard role? Today, I would be I would be worried about
1: exactly the scenario that you described, which is who's the guy that pulls the Raptors out of those uh, in game doldrums? Because I think one of the things that we really saw, again, at least at this point, is it's not really Siakam, and it's not really Van Vliet. and. It's the thing that I always bristled against when people were sort of looking at Lowry as someone who might get traded last this, in this season when they were talking about it last summer as though it was almost an inevitability. And I thought it, it, it spoke to a certain disconnect between uh, the kind of general NBA media versus the Toronto media. Because I think when you actually are in a position where you have to watch all 82 plus playoffs of the Raptors, you understand that The thing that Lowry brings to the team, more so than almost any of his stats, is exactly that. It's a guy who truly is a leader of the team and understands what the team needs in order to win specific games. And it's a tremendously unique quality. And I actually believe that it's the thing that's going to keep the Raptors re-signing him, potentially past what one would consider to be not only his prime, but his post-prime. Because I think that there are certain intangibles that until you feel confident that you have someone that can replace them, you can't just assume that someone else on the team who can technically fill the role of point guard uh, will be able to do the things that he does as a playmaker or as a leader. And you think about some guys, the guy that I always kind of compare him to in this particular respect, it's, uh, and not in terms of how they play the game, but in terms of their ability to have that kind of longevity, uh, is actually Andre Miller, who was somebody who was much more of a pass 1st point guard, but he was a guy that was able to hang on much longer, when every year people were sort of willing to write him off, he can't be a starting point guard anymore, he's too slow, he doesn't defend, all that sort of stuff. But he knew the game so well that he was able to continually help his teams win because he understood how to read the game in those ways. And even though there were more talented people on his teams, and younger guys would bristle at the fact that he was getting minutes over them, there were these things that you just couldn't assume a younger player was going to be able to fill in for. And I actually think that Lowry is very gracefully entering into that phase of his career and it's why I actually think that the Raptors are going to be very reluctant to part with him unless Lowry makes it abundantly clear that he wants to finish his career in some other organization so I kind of almost feel like the Raptors at least for the next couple years may not have to face that problem but um, but I guess we'll see
2: yeah, and I really don't put a cap on Lowry's longevity here. I think he easily has a couple of more years left in him at current, if not current caliber, then maybe slightly below current caliber. And I think I don't think discounting Lowry at next year as Lowry's last year is uh, is wise by any means. By the way, have you noticed that uh, the Lakers' title? Nobody's talking about how uh, they won a couple of games without Dragic and, uh, and Bam in there, and but the Raptors got all this flack for 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 the Thompson injury.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of hard not to notice. I, I mean, I think, though, that it's... Uh, I'm sure that if you talk to uh, people in LA that they feel as though they were their, their title is still in some way disqualified. I think it's sort of the burden of the winner to always have to kind of deal with the fact that their path to the championship was in some way sullied by some force that they can't control. But uh, yeah, it definitely seemed a little bit louder last year that the... Golden State Warriors maybe had more disadvantages in the eyes of the Golden State Warriors fans. But, you know what? The Raptors have their championship. The Lakers have their championship. I am satisfied. It is fine.
2: Hey, uh, while we're somewhat on, the, uh, on a similar topic, can you go into Kawhi Leonard's mind and tell us what he's thinking right now?
1: Do you know what? I actually had a very, very uh, interesting—I mean, I thought it was an interesting thought. Nobody else may think this is an interesting thought. But— I wonder sometimes about the idea of how much the success with the Raptors last year overinflated Leonard's sense of how easy it is to win a championship on a new team. And and I don't even mean that as a like, oh, he's dumb. He thought he could walk in and win a championship. I mean it more in the sense that like you come into that Clippers situation. Many people thought that they were, uh, if not sort of the number one chance to win the title, then at least in that top three and I think what you saw is a player that actually didn't understand why it wasn't easier. And I think you saw it, especially as the Clippers started to melt down uh, in the playoffs, this notion of a guy like when you watch Leonard play last year, hobbling around the court, you never got the sense that even when things looked like they were kind of dicey against Philadelphia or when they were almost going to go down three Oh against Milwaukee, you never got that sense from him that, you know what? Like, I can't figure out how to make this work. I'm going to kind of pull my foot off the gas pedal a little bit. And you saw that with the Clippers. I think you saw a sense of, uh, you saw a guy that didn't really believe that it was going to happen and didn't quite understand why. And it's a real testament, I think, to A, the roster the team had put together last year, uh, the coaching staff and the work that they did. I think the hunger that Leonard had to I think actually one of the things that he probably underestimates is his own need to prove people wrong last year and how big of a impact that had on his motivation to play and I think you saw all of that really show up as he was surrounded by guys that weren't really lifting him up that he wasn't able to lift up and it left him in an elimination game situation where he kind of just looked disinterested which I mean if you flash back a year and a half before would be the last thing you would have expected from Kawhi Leonard. So I, that's where I kind of walked away with it from. I think he actually just thought it would be easier.
2: Did you enjoy pandemic basketball?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, it was fascinating. I, I was happy to have basketball back. I watched a lot of basketball. I really enjoyed having afternoon basketball, um, but it was different. And I and and and, and it's it's a really useless answer because there's no nuance to it but I, I all it was is it just felt different it is it 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 not in an asterisk way not in a Lakers title doesn't count but I don't know it, it was something that wasn't like I don't want to say wasn't NBA basketball I don't know what to put on it but I just I found it I found it challenging to get into it in the same way as as high level of most of the basketball was and as great as it was to have everything back. And I think that everybody who won deserved it and and fought through more than they would in a regular normal circumstance. But but yeah, I I, I never quite settled into it like I would a a typical NBA season.
2: Yeah. So what I thought the eight seeding games that they had did a really good job of like setting the stage for the postseason Mm -hmm. because we had some beauties in there. Right, I mean, and, and some nice little storylines there with the Phoenix Suns and uh, and the Lakers-Clippers game and the Raptors were playing really well. Uh, and there was also like a Raptors-Bucks matchup in there. So th- there was a bunch of really good games. And I think once people kind of got over the fact that, hey, there's no crowd, but the game is still the same and, and the production quality of the broadcast increased and, and you know s- some of the things they sorted out technically, I, I couldn't really tell the difference. I, I-, I enjoyed it more than what i would enjoy a normal game because i thought there was more focus on the game there weren't as many distractions as you would find in a in a normal game with the with the the arena effects and all that stuff so i i really enjoyed it and i thought some of the playoff series we saw especially in the west with the with the nuggets and jazz were just phenomenal quality i don't think i've seen a playoffs so many tightly contested playoff series in, in one playoff in, in quite some time. So I really liked it. Any adjustments that the NBA made that you would like to see carry over into the uh, into normal basketball when, when that does return, if it does return?
1: I definitely think, I mean, the, I really liked the play in tournament idea. I, I thought it was a slightly modest version that they did as they were kind of dipping their toe in the water. But it's something that for the longest time, as I would hear guys like Bill Simmons and, and Zach Lowe really try to Push for it. I always kind of resisted, and perhaps it was more of a traditionalist than I thought I was. But, but no, kind of seeing the way in which it, it 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 created a certain kind of excitement in what shouldn't really have been a particularly exciting eight game run up to the um, to the playoffs. I was I dug it, and, and I would actually really like them to uh, to continue that. And it sounds like it's something that's almost inevitable going into next season. So I'm all for that. Um, otherwise, I mean, I actually didn't really feel. I mean, it, it, funny since I, my comment about it not feeling the same, but I actually didn't feel like there was so many other changes that, that I felt had a, a, a significant impact aside from the things that the NBA can't really implement. Like the fact that there wasn't any travel and the fact that, um, it felt like that, that guys just weren't nearly as, um, as tired, as prone to injury, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, really for me, I think it's probably the play in tournament that I'd love to see, uh, brought in and kind of gussied up a bit.
2: I I like the NFL style officiating when the official announces uh, to the audience what exactly the play was. I thought that that was an easy one to carry over.
1: You know, in fact, I think I got so used to it so quickly
2: that I almost forgot that that was specifically for. I totally agree. That was fantastic. Uh, so, so one guy that really made his mark in the in the postseason, and I've and I've seen his clips maybe man, three or four times over and over again because I re- I made a couple of analysis videos on him is is OG Ananobi, mm-hmm. uh, who missed the title season uh, due to injury and uh, and personal reasons, and he came back strong and he really established himself as a legit three and D player. Like he, I think that's 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 all he did. I think most of his makes really were three-pointers. And defensively, he was solid. So I think, you know, check on on that box next to his uh, skills. What do you see the next step for OG Ananobi? The two things that I, for me, I'd like to
1: see him improve upon are not net new things. They're actually things that are already sort of in his game that I'd like to see become a little bit more prominent. So one is the cutting away from the ball. I think that he's somebody that, because for now at least, teams still sort of forget about on defense when we're kind of living in this era of very team-oriented defensive coverages. That ability to kind of sneak through those seams um, is so valuable for a team like the Raptors whose offense can get a little stagnant. And I think he has a huge opportunity on that end, especially being somebody that guys right now are really kind of tilting towards him being more of the three-point shooter. I think those avenues are going to be open to him. Um, And I also think that my hope is that if that gets built into the offense a little bit more and he demonstrates a, a capacity for it, that it keeps the ball moving and it keeps people more aware. Um, Cause I think, I mean, this is true of most teams, but I think the Rockers offense becomes the most problematic when the ball sticks. So that's one. And the other one then is almost the inverse of that. It's, it's for him to continue his passing. I, I mean, I remember in his rookie season, that was kind of the most revelatory thing about OG's game. Um, we knew the defense coming in, but he was actually quite a canny passer. And He's just not typically in a situation where he's asked to to facilitate much of the offense. They definitely tried to give him a, more of an opportunity with the ball in his hands to attack, which is fine. And, and I and I get why uh, the team is looking at that. But I think finding opportunities for him to sort of be a bit more of like a middle of a swing pattern um, kind of guy who doesn't necessarily initiate or, or or complete a possession but acts as one of those cogs in the middle of it as a passer, I think – would be a huge, huge asset to him because I think that he's probably never really going to be the type of guy on the Raptors who is a number one option, even a number two option. But I also find that he's too talented to just be someone that gets parked like a Danny Green. I think there's just more to his game than that. And so I think the ability to kind of both move the, the ball and then move the ball is something that would be a, a, a tremendous um addition to his skill set. And then it's also incumbent upon the team at that point to make sure that both of those skills would be leveraged consistently within the offensive attack.
2: Yeah, I I can't even think of a play where he had an assist, like, 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 uh, like an assist as in, you know, like he, he created a shot on his own or he did something clever to actually produce something. Most of his assists are really just, you know, on the, you know, as you're swinging around the horn, he's passing it to the next guy who hits a three. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that you you feel that that's his area of development. I mean, it it completely is an area of development for him. It's just that I don't know if I've seen anything from him that even says that that's an area he's even looking to improve.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, and I think that I, I probably have, I carry a little bit of bias, I think, from the way in which they developed Siakam because it was something in his first year you would never have thought that they would have any interest in trying to get him a bit more passing reps. And when they came back from that one summer where that was sort of his prime focus and they were going to give him that opportunity to bring the ball up the floor, it kind of blew my mind. And it's not so much that I think that's what I, I would imagine from OG. It's more just a case of, I think, whether or not it's this year or soon the team's going to lose Marcus Hall. You know, at some point that's going to happen, and he is still, to me, as a as a facilitator on offense, tremendously underrated. And uh, within the Raptors, not in his career, and there's going to need to be guys on the team that sort of fill those roles of keeping the ball moving. And 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 it's not so much again of him creating assists for other people. I, for me, I'm not even so much interested in whether he's actually collecting assists, but it's somebody who is able to to keep the ball moving in these possessions and to take it and get rid of it quickly. Not even necessarily swing it around the perimeter, you know, it's looks that it sort of go from like the wing to the high post and back out or uh, high post to low post. These sorts of things are all of them are, are, are on the table. It's just a matter of finding opportunities for him to touch and get rid of the ball really quickly and, and, and use a bit more of the basketball IQ that we saw him uh, demonstrate a little bit of in his rookie
2: season. A couple of days after the season ended, Uh, Nick Nurse sat down and he bought himself a moleskin notebook. You know, he hadn't journaled for a while, so he said, let's start fresh. And he wrote down his first chapter title, let's say, his first entry into his journal was, what I learned about myself in the Boston Celtics series. What do you think that chapter has in it? And if you can, answer this question in the first person as if you're Nick Nurse. (laughs) Optional, that's optional.
1: Wow. Two-parter. Okay. I'll, I'll probably drift into the second person, but I would think that the place that I could have taken the most learnings from, from a series like that is understanding that I don't always get to lean on the fact that this has worked. So inevitably it's going to work going forward. And I mean, it's, it's kind of, he doesn't do that nearly the degree that Dwayne Casey did. He's a phenomenally innovative coach, but I think that I would say that like, the uh, the notion that that he was slow in terms of understanding how much how much Siakam was struggling, and you have to balance that against the fact that you also need him to win. So you can't just say, you know, he's struggling. Let's get the ball out of his hands. But I think that there was a a um, Going back into that series, I think that he would probably have wanted to reimagine the way in which he dealt with that situation. And, and I think that sometimes we conflate the idea that in the media he's talking about how Siakam is doing fine, he's getting good shots. I mean, that's not how, that's not representative of the conversations he's having with Siakam and how he feels internally. That's what you have to do in the media to, to back up your player. But I think that there was a certain kind of Expectation that inevitably Siakam was going to bounce out of that. And I think in hindsight, you could sort of say that was actually probably somewhat naive. We could tell pretty early on that Siakam was struggling beyond just normal playoff yips And um, that would be the thing that I think he would probably have taken away from. it. especially, I think, being somewhat spoiled as he was last year, having a guy like Kawhi Leonard, where your number one guy is your number one guy and he always finds a way to perform. That's just not Siakam yet. And so that's, I think, the the biggest takeaway that he would probably have coming out of, I would imagine that he would have coming out of this year's series against Boston.
2: I I think in his journal, he should have uh, a whole chapter dedicated to Serge Ibaka and Mark Saul. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if there's one thing that I observed throughout the seven games is that the Celtics did not have an answer for Ibaka inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as, as good as, uh, Tice was throughout that series, Ibaka went put in two man game situations and even from three, he was phenomenal, mm-hmm. but especially when he had the ball in the paint and the Raptors did a little bit of work to get him in some, in those positions that he likes, whether it be a floater or a little hook, they, they really didn't have any answer for him. I thought we did not milk that enough. And, and the, 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 the faith that he had in Gasol backfired. I think there's just, there's just too many minutes played in that series where we had the wrong guy at center, and we, which came back to, to haunt us.
1: I don't disagree. Uh, I definitely think that there was a tilting towards um, Ibaka in terms of the momentum of games that wasn't always reflected. I don't necessarily think that means he had to start Ibaka, and I know that's not what you're arguing, but I think there's definitely an opportunity to find him more minutes. I would imagine that part of the reluctance um, – to to give him more of those minutes was a kind of fear when you saw how much the Raptors might struggle on offense sometimes and their kind of overall lack of playmakers, um, why he might have felt that Gasol was worth keeping on the court. But I definitely think that as the series evolved, that skill set wasn't enough to offset the challenges he was having elsewhere um, on offense. And especially given how well Ibaka was playing, uh, I definitely think there was an opportunity for him to shift more of those minutes to Ibaka. And so you're right, that actually probably would be another significant uh, part of it. And I'm sure it also will play a part in terms of how the Raptors are evaluating this summer when it comes to uh, when it comes to those two players.
2: Uh, Ibaka, I
1: want back. What what about you? Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, I actually would be fine bringing both of them back doesn't mean they have to play the same way that they did. But Ibaka for me, it's like you start to Here out there for some people, I mean, again, there's always that dividing up of of sort of the pundits and and the people that are kind of more plugged in are pretty, uh, pretty certain that he's going to come back on a a large one year. Um, But yeah, I'm always surprised when I, when I hear that, you know, Ibaka might be someone who's a candidate to go to a contender for uh, the mid-level exception as though two things aren't true. One, he, the Raptors aren't a contender and B that, uh, that he would for some reason turn down, like, let's say. 20 25 million dollar one-year deal to go for nine million uh somewhere else it's i just i it doesn't it doesn't ring true to me i am like i i kind of operate under the assumption that sergey is
2: coming back yeah uh, he he's 31 years old and even if he's not because there's always been questions about his 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 his, <laughs> his, his birth date but uh, he he's in top shape He's productive. I think he's actually improving. And he's, you know, he's he's not the same surge that used to like block shots left and right in OKC. But I think he's overall a more mature and better basketball player. He's definitely a more complete player than what he used to be in OKC. I no, I totally agree. I, I
1: actually think that it's it's a kind of retroactive continued indictment of some of the coaching that happened in OKC during that that era, because I think there was always um there was always criticism that sort of went about how predictable that that team's um uh, approach to the game was, especially how much they would just sort of rely on the inevitable brilliance of Durant and Westbrook. And I think that the person that really might have lost out a little bit on that is the development of Ibaka. And because I think by the time that he started bouncing around to Orlando, to Toronto, and his first couple of years in Toronto weren't necessarily uh, uh, his best years, that there was a kind of figuring that, well, it's on him. That, you know, he's someone that is just fundamentally flawed in certain areas of his game. And that's exactly like your, to your point, The last couple of years have have sort of proved that to be untrue, that if you are willing to invest in him and you're willing to put him into positions to succeed and develop him as a player, he can develop and he can grow. And I agree that I think his last couple of years have demonstrated that he's capable of being a much better basketball player than anyone is willing to give him credit for earlier on his career. So, I mean, credit to him, credit to the team, credit to Nurse, but uh, chiefly credit to him.
2: Uh, Let's talk a little about Norman Powell. I think he's sort of been written or what he was written off as the most tradable asset that the Raptors have because he's at the right age. He's nearing the end of his deal. Uh, You know, he's uh, people sort of feel that his ceiling, maybe if he's not hit it, it's sort of evident at this point. Uh, And the Raptors also had somebody who they thought maybe was a potential replacement for him in Terrence Davis, who's going through legal troubles right now. Are you are you like everybody else and basically thinking that he, he, like if you want to make a move for somebody, somebody uh, who can fit the team better, Norm's your guy to ship?
1: I mean, I think that that's true, but not because I think the team is in any way eager to lose him. I think that Norm Powell um, is the kind of contract that a lot of teams have to keep on the books if they want to be players in the open market because it is one of those in-between contracts. And you just often need those to make the salaries work in deals. And so I think that if Norman Powell is traded or even when he's thrown into trade, it's not because there's any kind of um, lack of faith in in him as a player. I think the Raptors would be loath to lose him. I think his development has really picked up again and he's become an incredibly reliable player. But the fact of the matter is, is to sort of get in on some of the kinds of um, deals that the team might want to get in on. It's just a contract. It's just easy easy to trade. I think that you see the reverse of that, and you see the perils of of the other thing with a team like Boston, where their their salary sheet is so top heavy that you really can't move guys or acquire guys unless you're trying to bring in massive salary, and um, otherwise you're packaging all of your other players. And so you need guys like Powell. Um, and I think that was part of the. Um, it was part of the the. Numbers that got set in his contract was to also have that contract on the books, but I don't think any of that is a reflection of a guy who made himself so valuable um three point shooter the defense he's a much smarter player than he's been in the last couple of years. You can really see him reading the game better, and all of that is true. I don't think the team wants to lose him i I, I even think that um that should the team sort of go out bargain hunting for sort of similar style players, it is necessarily even a, a comment on them trying to set themselves up for a future without Powell. I, I just think that those kinds of players are always valuable. But um, I, all that said, I would be surprised to see Powell on the team in two years. And it has everything to do with just circumstance and absolutely nothing to do with how well he's played.
2: Yeah, and also at 27, you know, he's going to be 28 when he when his deal ends, I guess, and uh, that's the age where you're looking to maximize your earnings. You're looking for a big deal, uh, which where you will make maybe 50, 60 percent of your what what you would have made in your entire career at that point. So, uh, and the Raptors, given what they're trying to do with pursuing Giannis and some of their own free agents, they probably will not be in a position to offer him the kind of money he's looking to make in trying to maximize his earnings.
1: Well, exactly. And I, cause I think at that point, when you start looking at how the salary cap breakdown would happen, you're looking at kind of him versus OG, like not because they're that similar necessarily, but because they would occupy that similar spot on the, on the cap sheet. And I don't think that Powell is necessarily so good that you figure you'll just, you'll, you'll absorb both of those contracts It just comes down to a numbers game at one point. And unless for whatever reason, the market for him considerably softens, and I hope it doesn't because I I think he deserves to get paid. I just don't think that it works with the stuff that the Raptors want to be doing.
2: Throughout this postseason, I I, I sort of observed that the mid-range game is coming back. I saw a lot of people step in for that uh, mid-range jumper after faking the three. I I don't know what the exact stats are, but it certainly felt like, especially in in that Utah-Denver series, where people were much more comfortable going in and and taking that eight to 10 footer. Uh, And and, and as I was watching that, I was like, man, what's old is new again. And we're trying to see what we're seeing people move away from the three-point line. Again, I'm not suggesting that the three-point line is going away. I think people will continue shooting like 60 threes a game. But there is a renewed interest.
1: the mid-range game well in a way it's it's sort of inevitable and by that i only just mean that like there was always a bit of a misunderstanding in general um, when the three-point revolution started to happen where the idea that the mid-range game was inherently bad and it wasn't that the mid-range game was inherently bad it's that there were more efficient shots on the floor but The fact of the matter is a guy like Dirk Nowitzki, no one complained when he shot from the mid range because he did it so effectively. And so it wasn't so much that the mid range game itself was bad. It was that a lot of guys just didn't do it well. But what's happened now is that as so many teams have bought in on the three point shooting spree, that's what defense is game plan for now. And those shots just aren't as open. And so now what's open the mid range. And so it, 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 Benefits players to actually work on their game in the mid range to the point where they can make it into a plus asset. And it does mean they have to hit those shots at a rate that would somewhat uh, even out in terms of making it not necessarily as efficient as a three point shot, but you've got to shoot a pretty high percentage from the mid range to make those numbers work. But be given the way the defenses have evolved or are evolving to compensate for three point shooters, that space is going to be open. And so if you're a player that has the ability to develop that part of their game and a team that's willing to put you in that position it makes a ton of sense for you to develop it because those shots are just there and you still have a kind of very reactive league where you still probably have a number of years where the kind of middle uh mid-range coaches who are basically just followers are gonna leave that mid-range open because they are still chasing out the three-point shooters and it's just it starts to become free money if you can play it right. And so I like it because it creates a bit more, like, just variety in the style of play that happens. I, it's something that I'm not quite uh, clamoring for it because it brings us back to the glory days of basketball. I just like the idea that there's just a better variety of shots. It makes the game more interesting. So I think it's an inevitable reaction to the way that defenses have evolved. Uh, and it actually, just for me, it happened sooner than I thought it would have. Yeah, but. um, yeah. But it's, uh, it's cool, and, and, and I'm curious to see how, like, I guess sort of the nouveau mid-range game differs from the classic mid-range game as more and more teams implement it.
2: We talked about rules a little bit earlier or, or changes from the pandemic, but another change that could happen in the NBA, and I was talking to Andrew Daimlin, who covers uh, the Raptors 905 uh, for, for Raptors Republic, and, and one of the experimental things they're doing in the G League is the one and one foul shot. So if you miss the first one, you don't get to make the second one.
1: I'm into it. I mean, there's that. Like, I'm into that. I'm into the international rebounding rule, and I and I and I think that the opportunity that the NBA has right now is in some way being squandered. And I get not wanting to throw a million changes at once at the wall because everybody's just trying to adapt to this ridiculous situation that we're all in. But that said, the fact that so much right now is untraditional, the fact that so much of the way that the game is going to be played the end of last year and for all of this year is untraditional. There's a really interesting opportunity to kind of lean into that. And I know that they are because they are doing things like the play in tournament, but I think that the NBA is a league that it, under the sort of back end of David Stern's tenure was starting to become a bit calcified in terms of tradition. And the nice thing that has started to happen is there's a little bit more of an open-mindedness to what the NBA could be. And it's not to say that I want to use this as an opportunity to completely reinvent the game, but I almost think that I'm sad that there aren't more things that are just being entertained as possibilities as a result of all of the stuff that's going on. And I think that especially in opportunities to speed up the game, I think in opportunities to schedule the game in such a way to try to minimize travel even more than they already do, I think... I mean, if you want to get really extreme in terms of experimenting with opportunities to try to expand the use of the Elam ending that we saw at the All-Star game, I'm not in any way ready to put it into play in the regular season, but it'd be something interesting to be a bit more dynamic about how you use potentially the preseason. Um, It's just there's an opportunity, I think, that we're in a place where I think we just have a better appetite to accept change. And the, the league, I believe, has to have a kind of developmental mentality in that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think almost the least of it is things like, like, uh, uh, adjusting the free throw rules, adjusting the rebounding rules. But I almost kind of wish that there was just more of an appetite to see what else could stick if you're willing to throw it against the wall. Did you pick up any skills during COVID? Uh, I, I, if anything, my, like any skills that I had have atrophied, I feel like I am (laughs) less skilled now than I was eight months ago. So I'm only praying that I can just stave off the rest of them and just hang on to what little I have.
2: Uh, I uh, I picked up some video editing. Uh, I think I learned a little bit about video editing, uh, and uh, and yeah, I think that was my main pickup. Oh yeah, I, I'm starting to take piano lessons. So oh, that's, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. Video so, editing was it something that it happened because of work, or you just decided I want to get better
2: at this? I always knew a little bit of it because I run uh, this arsenal website called Arsenalist.com where I cut up videos and all that. But uh, I kind of wanted to produce some more YouTube videos for Raptors Republic, so I uh, so so I got into that a little bit. So I learned that and then uh with the piano yeah my kids had piano at like four o'clock and 4 30 so i said hey i'll take the five o'clock time slot so uh yeah i can play jingle bells now <laughs> just in time <laughs> That
1: is hilarious. Uh,
2: thanks for coming on again man appreciate it and uh maybe we'll we'll, we'll do it you know next time in, in less than a year
1: yeah you know what let's uh, let's try to make that happen
2: okay awesome man okay. thank you
0: Meredith Fiera is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at
1: MyHealthPolicy.com.
0: Meet Larry. He likes doing things online.
1: I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at myhealthpolicy.com.
0: Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called myhealthpolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose myhealthpolicy.com and enrolled on the spot.